Thank you all. If you were at the St. Francis Auditorium last night, you know what a fabulous string quartet we have the honor of having here with us tonight. And as this series is about uh, not just performing music straight through, but um, examining music and exploring the composers and looking at what made them tick and why they wrote what they wrote, uh, I'm taking terrible advantage of these four wonderful <laughs> players tonight. And, um, you know, I, I said rather boldly in the, in the publicity that we were going to do the, the history of chamber music. Well, that's clearly a, like a 12-part <laughs> series. So this is a somewhat uh, a specific part of chamber music. But um, I'll give you a, a really quick overview and just say that in the 1500s and 1600s, string instruments were way ahead of keyboard instruments. And uh, a piano like this didn't appear until, you know, just a little over a hundred years ago. But string instruments like these appeared 300 years ago. In fact, they're, they're very coveted today. Uh, I dare say no pianist today would want to get an authentic piano from the 1700s. <laughs> uh, so we're, we're very happy with the modern version. In the Baroque period, there were of course, lots of small instrumental ensembles, and they generally consisted of um, a continuo, which meant a harpsichord plus a bass instrument, something like a cello, that would carry the bass line and imply the harmonic structure, and usually uh, one or two violins playing on top in some kind of counterpoint, in some kind of harmony. What is really interesting, I think, is that three of the major forms that we all know and love today, the symphony, the string quartet, and this kind of chamber music, say piano plus strings, was virtually invented and certainly uh, brought to public attention by one man, and that was Joseph Haydn. Haydn, born in 1732, uh, had a facility to take a form and develop it to an extent that his contemporaries could hardly believe. Now, the Baroque, the high Baroque, with its incredible counterpoint, was beginning to uh, reach the end of its popularity. Uh, J.S. Bach had two sons in particular um, who developed a much more accessible kind of music for the much wider audience that was starting to listen to music. So really, the move uh, has to do with the public being engaged in a way that they couldn't uh, before. Now, when Haydn started to want to earn a living, he would take a, a position, you know, out in nowhere land, and uh, it so happened, this, this sounds like just a legend, but this is actually true, it so happened that his employer um, and the neighbors and Haydn, among the four of them, really had only four instruments they could play. Two, two of them were violinists, one violist and one cellist. And uh, I know it sounds like a joke, but really when Haydn was 18, uh, because it was convenient and this is what he was being paid for, he wrote 10 string quartets for his employer and the neighbors. And um, it, it, I'm not diminishing the greatness of your, your art form. But, it, it, it just started that way. So uh, not long, not long there, uh, Haydn wrote, you know, depending how you count, about 80 string quartets. 
and, and um, not long thereafter, he decided to write uh, for another instrumental combination that was convenient, and that was the piano trio. So uh, the piano trio was a piano, one violin, and one cello. Uh, we're going to play you a little bit of Haydn's first piano trio in G minor, and you'll notice that although the combination of instruments would not have occurred in the Baroque, because first of all, there weren't really pianos, but... Um, <laughs> okay, if you can make it do that longer, we'll improvise a whole piece around it, right? That's chamber music. Right. So, <laughs> You're going, to hear, you're going to hear in these, these few bars of Haydn how this piano trio has many elements of the Baroque still in it. The rhythmic figurations, the dotted rhythms, the little trills and mordants, and the whole harmonic sensibility is really a hybrid between Baroque music and early classical music. So uh, if you all will find your... <laughs> I, I trade the trio with me soon. I get uh, okay, all right. The G minor. G minor. It says 19. Yeah. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> this was written around 1755. Okay. Oh, do we need to tune? All right, so you get a feel. Now, just once, Felix, let's you and I give away Haydn's little secret and just play the piano part and the cello part without the violin. <laughs> and here we go. Yes, it's true. It's exactly the same. <laughs> now, Haydn branched out a little bit as his long and illustrious career went on, so we're going to jump ahead 35 years. Uh, Haydn wrote, I think, like 35 or 40 piano trios. So this is, uh, by the time he wrote this next one, Mozart was already born and died. But you'll notice that it doesn't sound like Baroque music anymore.
Nothing Baroque about this anymore. <laughs> what, what, happens, what happens in this period of music is that suddenly, uh, well, let's step back one second. In Baroque music, there is still a distinction between the different keys. Uh, C major has the intervals that are closest to being the correct intervals, and then as the uh, keys move toward the sharp side, um, they get brighter and brighter, and as they move towards the flat side, they get uh, deeper and deeper. But once you get past about three sharps or three flats, in the old system of tuning, uh, it's pretty unlistenable, because the, the tuning, e equal temperament hadn't been uh, developed. So once equal temperament is developed, the different keys have less distinct personality. C major is like B major, except it's a little bit higher. But um, the thing is that because now composers can shift into any key and it's uh, tolerable to the ear, a whole new kind of musical drama begins to unfold in the classical period. And that is a drama based on how far away from a key center we journey. So uh, even in this Haydn uh, exposition that we played, we ended in A major. Here we're at letter A, everybody. Now A, the note A, also happens to be the median in F major. And Haydn then writes a fermata as if to say, did you get that? I just went into a totally foreign key. Right? That's something Bach would, of course, could have done, but would never have chosen to do. It's not part of Baroque musical language. So uh, after that, he says, wait, let's see what we're going to do next. And he moves up. So this idea of a melodic interjection is also a very classical idea, classical uh, with a capital C. This period of Haydn, uh, Mozart, and Beethoven that uh, really takes musical language and finds a way to extend it over much longer periods of time. So we're going to go from Haydn to Haydn's friend Mozart. Mozart uh, had incredible admiration for Haydn. He was 24 years younger than Haydn. But once Haydn heard Mozart's music, he said to Mozart's father, I swear before God that your son is the greatest composer known to me. And Mozart said pretty much the same thing about Haydn. They really felt that the other one was the only worthwhile composer <laughs> at the time. So uh, Mozart heard a lot of chamber music at home. His father played string quartets with friends, and uh, so the story goes, Mozart was five or six and said, can I play the second violin part along with the, whoever was playing second violin? And his father said, go play in your room or something. But the second violinist said, oh, come on. So uh, Mozart sat by him, played the part, and pretty soon the second violinist just stopped playing because Mozart, in fact, could play the part 
perfectly. And his father, with tears in his eyes, said, oh, this is so marvelous. And Mozart said, Dad, it's only the second violin part. <laughs> I'm going to owe you all something by the end of this evening. <laughs> so Mozart had this marvelous facility and also had chamber music in his ear. So he pre produced what were perhaps the first uh, published piano quartets, piano plus violin, viola, and cello. So we're going to play you a little bit of one of Mozart's piano quartets. This is a G minor, whoever has it. I was doing a half bar. Three, four. Oh, you give it. I just want to say a couple things. <laughs> Sorry, it's going to be a long night. Um, obviously, a string quartet has a marvelous homogenized sound. They're all string instruments. The whole point of a piano trio, piano quartet, piano quintet, is that the piano is a percussive instrument. And so two kinds of instruments are coexisting. They're pitted against each other sometimes, or they're in harmony sometimes. But it's the very difference between the piano and the strings that makes this genre of chamber music so fascinating. Obviously, as you hear all these examples, you'll hear more and more as history progresses how the composer uses the difference of the piano from the strings to uh, make the piece more powerful. In Haydn, that was not really the case, what you heard. But already in Mozart, uh, this one statement has nothing to do with this other character. It's almost like the beginning of the uh, Jupiter Symphony. Sorry, so you have a, a, a very strong character that's saying, you know, hello, here I am, and the other one is saying, and I'm here too, you know, and, <laughs> and they go back and forth. So in, in this opening, it's kind of the same. Or um, think of the uh, fourth movement of the G minor symphony. Uh, there, there's a um, statement of one kind and then something that is a whole different character. So Mozart loves the personality of different characters. That's probably why he wrote more operas than Haydn did, because Mozart loved different personalities and how to express those um, in music. So we're going to play this again, and uh, you'll, you'll hear um, these different characters that come out in Mozart's way of writing.
okay. <laughs> Thank you. How, how different this is from Baroque music in that every few bars a new uh, musical idea is introduced that clearly has a whole different character. Uh, or that wonderful tune that you didn't expect. <laughs> And the fact that the piano stands away from the strings means that the strings can play it and it has one kind of sonority and feeling and then the piano plays it and it has a whole a different one. Um, this is one of the great features, I think, of piano with strings chamber music. Um, we might, oh, let me just say, as this kind of chamber music evolves, uh, also, thank you, Joseph Haydn, we have um, something that I think is really Haydn's invention, and that is the classical sonata form. I don't remember when I said that Haydn created uh, some of the basic forms of the classical period, that, whether I mentioned that, that he's also pretty much responsible for the symphony, uh, as well as the, the string quartet and the, the piano trio. So the classical form has a couple of things going on. One is that in a movement, there are uh, primary themes and secondary themes that come back in different dynamics, in different registers, in different keys, and that the uh, whole journey going from whatever the home key of a piece is, often to quite remote keys, and then coming back using these themes in um, somewhat prescribed ways, but in ways that composers felt more and more freedom with as time went on is what makes these pieces and gives them their architecture. So Haydn um, often worked in a three-movement form. Mozart started to move into more of a four-movement form, and Beethoven certainly was most comfortable in that four-movement form, which was typically a first movement that was compositionally the most complex, uh, a second movement that was often the slow movement, the lyrical, beautiful, feeling, emotional movement, a third movement that was often in 3-4, a minuet, and later, historically, a scherzo. Uh, scherzo means joke, but it didn't, it wasn't that it was a joke, it was usually a good-natured piece. But, uh, and then a fourth movement that usually uh, was a, a very quick finale that left everybody uh, feeling great. So I think that um, what we're gonna do now is just play a little bit of the slow movement, the second movement of this G minor Quintet to give you a feeling, or a trio. Quartet.
and like Haydn, we're going to go to a strange key. and back to home.
that movement was in B flat major, which is the relative major of G minor. So it's got the same key signature, but um, it's major instead of minor, and it's common in this sonata form for some of the movements to be in different but related keys. But as history moved forward, sometimes the keys became less and less uh, related, both in symphonic repertoire that followed the classical model of sonata form and the uh, chamber music repertoire. So Mozart, as you can tell, um, was writing four completely independent parts. It's different from Joseph Haydn, that even the later work written after Mozart's death, in that uh, the publisher said, well, this music is great if there are four professional virtuosi standing up there, but um, for home use, this is not very practical, Mr. <laughs> Mozart. And of course, home use was a big deal because people were starting to get pianos in their homes, and uh, around 1800, uh, the, the music's uh, fulcrum was no longer in the court. It was no longer the property of the aristocracy. It had really moved uh, from the palaces into the homes of the bourgeois. So this meant that composers were trying to create things that were, at the same time, great music, but playable by a wider range of people, and it could be appreciated by a wider range of people. So melody, um, this whole romantic spirit that's now going to emerge around the turn of the century at 1800. So we're going to play um, some Beethoven for you. The uh, first set of piano trios that Beethoven wrote, Opus, um, Opus 1, his very first published works. Obviously, he'd written other things before that when he was a kid. <laughs> I'm just going to do that every time. <laughs> So there's a piece by Mark Adamo where he has cell phones planted in the audience. And they go off for real. It's for real. And it starts with a woman talking to her lover on her cell phone. And it's a great piece because pretty soon it, it's clear that her lover is somewhere in the audience, but nobody can tell who it is. And, and the orchestra and the cell phones are all interacting and it's... Uh, it's like modern life, all right? <laughs> We're taking you back away from modern life for just, just a little while longer. Um, Beethoven was so proud of his first three piano trios that he, he published them as his Opus One. But this piano trio that we're gonna play you is his Opus 97, the so-called Archduke trio, because he dedicated it to, to uh, Archduke Ferdinand. This business of dedicating music, you know, was really important because uh, if you had a patron and you dedicated a piece to them, you would be paid better than if you just wrote a piece on spec. And uh, I, I discovered recently that Schubert paid Beethoven the highest compliment, which is uh, for one of his great pieces, he decided that he would dedicate it to Beethoven, who wasn't going to give him a penny for it, <laughs> rather than uh, the patron who probably would have paid him very handsomely. But it was more important to Schubert who probably knew he had only a few months left anyway, to, um, to dedicate this to Beethoven. So anyway, um, Beethoven created this Archduke trio uh, toward the end of his life, and we're gonna play you a little bit of it. I don't know what we're gonna play. Um, why don't we play the third, a little of the third movement? You know, I've mentioned that there are these scherzos in trios, these happy, fast movements in three. 
you want to do the scarecrow? Yeah, let's do the scarecrow. The second movement? No, the, is it the second? I think it's the third. No, you're right, the second movement. Here we go. There we go. String quartet one, Joe. No. Yeah, here we go. Stop one second. Would any? Would any audience member have known what the heck was going on when we were just in in a in a key and suddenly Beethoven has the cello? It's like what 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 is that? All right, carry on. Do that. Yes, there you go.
um, it's fair to say that the next generation of composers was so in the shadow of Beethoven, so in awe of Beethoven, that uh, he exerted a tremendous influence on what they did. So we're going to take a break, and uh, we're going to come back and play you some um, quartet and quintet and trio music by uh, Schumann and Brahms and maybe something else, because uh, at first uh, these composers just felt they, they couldn't move um, because Beethoven's greatness um, prevented them from feeling like they had anything more to say, but they found out that they did, in fact. <laughs> so let's take a break, and I'll see you in 15 or 20 minutes. Thank you guys so much. So over all those refreshments, we've moved well into the 19th century, okay? And uh, we're going to start with a piano quintet, finally using all of us at the same time. Um, Goethe said, I'm sure you've heard this quote, that uh, chamber music made him think of a conversation among rational people. Uh, <laughs> that's such a presumptuous remark. Like <laughs> but um, he assumed that he and all of his friends were rational people, and it was the Enlightenment and all that. But uh, now... Uh, Schumann has written a, a piano quintet, and um, the, the conversational nature of chamber music is going to be evident in uh, the very opening of this. So um, after some heroic chords, uh, you're going to hear a melody passed back and forth from instrument to instrument, and that's one of the most fun things uh, about chamber music. So let's play the opening of the Schumann, guys. Are we retuning?
So. I, I heard a, an old teacher in San Francisco tell me that there were two great string players who were also on the championship bridge tournament. And uh, of course they were not breaking any of the rules when they were quietly humming during bidding and they'd go. <laughs> One would sing, hmm, 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 and the other would go, hmm, 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 hmm. And somehow they had figured out how to communicate almost everything in their hands <laughs> through singing the Schumann Quintet. And not surprisingly, they were disqualified from the, the circuit. But it's, it's so great, this, this conversation among rational people. So Schumann, Schumann discovered a young composer uh, named Brahms. And Brahms uh, came on the scene like a meteor. You know, Schumann said to the, the music-loving public in Germany at large, hats off, gentlemen, a genius. Well, Brahms was, I don't know, 25 years younger than um, Schumann. But the, the two quickly became great friends, and uh, Brahms actually lived for a while in the Schumann household. Uh, Schumann was married to a great pianist, Clara Schumann, and Clara Schumann played all of Robert Schumann's works and uh, all of Brahms' works, solo works, chamber works. Um, Schumann himself was a great pianist, but he, I don't know if any of you play the piano, but your fourth finger, this finger, is, is weaker than the others. And that's just the way our hands are made. But um, Schumann decided he was going to help that, and he put it up in a leather sling, and uh, he destroyed the ability to use this finger. And medicine at that point ha had the idea that if he stuck his finger in the dead carcass of a pig, that um, the life force of the pig would revive his finger. <laughs> Astonishingly, it did not. So. So Schumann, instead of being one of hundreds of great pianists, was you know, one of the greatest composers. So actually, it's probably, in a terrible way, <laughs> really good that he destroyed his finger and his ability to play the piano. And, and Clara would play the piano. So uh, Brahms, uh, following in, in uh, Schumann's footsteps, but also very much, as I said, in the shadow of Beethoven, uh, was terrified. It, it took Brahms over 20 years to write his first symphony because he felt, you know, how can I write a symphony after Beethoven? And the same was true of his chamber works. Uh, and he wrote and rewrote, there is more music that Brahms burned than that Brahms published. So we don't know more than half of what the man uh, composed, but we are gonna play you some of the things he didn't burn. And this is an early piece, a piano trio in uh, B major. Do you have a favorite part of this, anybody? Opening. Opening, okay. <laughs> we'll just go a little ways. <laughs> no, so Brahms uh, loves the sonority of the bass. And uh, you'll notice he scores things lower than the other thing. Brahms would never have written. Uh, but uh, lots of thick writing and uh, low writing. It's uh, just his unique personality.
Is that what we're doing? Yes. That's the great thing about chamber music like this. We can. Okay, we're getting to the hard part. Let's stop. As you can tell, we were enjoying here on the stage, you know, the people that were not playing. <laughs> and I know the piece, but that beginning always catches me. It's so great. I, I was enjoying it immensely until the fast notes came up. <laughs> <laughs> Does that mean it's time for a slow movement? So I, I brought... Um, I just, the, the selection of music was what was in my cabinet that I had uh, an intact set of all the string parts for. <laughs> so uh, we're going to play a slow movement from Brahms's uh, piano quartet. Brahms loved the cello. He loved the French horn. He loved the cello.
That's good. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> these, these great melodies that Brahms created, you know, they were so long and, and, and seemingly just endless, endless melody. Um, Brahms loved the symphony orchestra and he created a, a symphony that um, Clara Schumann, who was his critic in, in all things, said uh, wasn't up to his level. But rather than burn this one, which is his usual reaction, he uh, rescored it as a piece for two pianos because uh, he felt that that way the textures and all the polyphony would come through more clearly. Um, but that didn't satisfy him either. It was his friend uh, Josef Joachim, who was a great violinist for whom Brahms wrote the violin concerto and many other things, that um, said, okay, write it as a work for piano and string quartet, and that way it will both have a symphonic quality and the clarity that uh, you want from the piano part. And so he created this F minor quintet. So uh, we're going to play a little of the F minor quintet.
Brahms loved chamber music. He loved writing it. He wrote 24 pieces in all of, uh, of chamber music. You know, not, that's not counting songs. It's works for uh, string quartet or piano and other instruments. Um, and, and he loved playing it, too. He played it with Joachim. He played it with uh, a cellist named Hausmann. And um, this was really what, what people did at home before there were movies. You know, they, they would, they would uh, play chamber music together. So, of course, chamber music was not just restricted to Germany and the German-speaking countries. I know it sounds that way from what we've been doing tonight. Uh, so there's too much to go into everybody else. But I did bring some Dvorak because, um, you know, Dvorak in 1888 wrote this piece. And at that time, the movement of nationalism was really sweeping Europe, which was instead of trying to conform to the wonderful models that Beethoven and other great composers had left. Composers wanted to use their own <coughs> native folk music and um, incorporate vernacular tunes into the structure of this kind of music. So let's play something from the, the Dvorak uh, quintet. You'll hear, you'll hear Czech, Czech melodies, Czech folk songs. I don't know, second movement? Jaime, now you can... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so in, in early chamber music, the viola never gets to do the fun stuff. <laughs> but by 1888, that's all changed, and he's the star. Thank mm -hmm. you. 
That's enough, everybody. Thank you so much. Bravo, everybody.